Hi, and welcome to this week's episode of Animal Chat with me, Harry Ekman. And me, Matt Payne. How are you doing this week, Matt? I am doing well, mate. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. What's uh, what's new? What do you got to share with me? You are gonna you're gonna be so excited. We had a new development this week. Guess what happened? You won't guess. Should I should I try? Right, or should right. I give it one. Or was that a rhetorical? It's a rhetorical, mate. It's a rhetorical. Okay. Do you know how last week you made a little link to Russia? Yes. Well, very suspicious. We had our first troll, Harry. We had a troll. We had a online troll. Oh my God, we've made it. We've made it. I'm not going to mention which podcast it was for or the individual because, you know, we're not like that. We're big. You know, we care. We don't want to put anyone in harm's way. Yeah, text me afterwards and I'll have them killed, but carry on. Definitely tell you off there. But this is what they said about our post, that we, as animal rights people, are no different than poachers, the mob and terrorists. Ooh. It gets better. It gets better. We are among the greatest threats that the world is facing, along with poachers, greenhouse gas pollution, brackets, climate change, close brackets, just in case you don't know what that is, deforestation, palm oil, toxic waste pollution, plastic pollution, overfishing, and Donald Trump. Oh my God. You know what? I was actually thinking that was from Donald Trump, but uh, clearly it's not. I'm thinking Russia have been listening and... They've got in touch. The other one demanded... Another one, because I'm still excited about being compared to a terrorist and an ivory poacher. Yeah, the other one, they were questioning our credibility, Harry. They said they demanded that we provide our sources for our information about captivity and that Blackfish is not a documentary. It is a propaganda movie. Ah, You know what? I'm going to have to watch it again and see whether it is. Wow, this is all great stuff. Oh, mate, we are really... We're making a difference. There's a quote about that from a very famous quote from from Hugh Laurie, uh, from his character House, (laughs) that says, if nobody hates you, you're doing something wrong. So if it's good enough for Hugh Laurie, I think it's good enough for us. Yeah, exactly. Very, very profound, Harry. Yeah, I'm a fond of quotes from really inspirational people, like a fictional character played by Hugh Laurie. A fictional American character played by the English actor Hugh Laurie. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Maybe it was him that was trolling us. Maybe it is. I can't believe we're being trolled. I'm so excited. Maybe it is. I'm so excited. This is what we did. I really feel like this is a sign that we've yeah. made it, yeah. that, that we have inflamed such hatred mm. and disgust that people are pointing to us as... As, as worse than Donald Trump. As worse than Donald Trump. Yeah, to be mentioned in yeah. the same sentence as Donald Trump, as all the things that are wrong. I mean, just put it this way, Harry, the man that, I mean, this is just my opinion, whose incompetence has led to the death of, what, 80,000 people, this podcast mm-hmm. is equivalent to that in some people's eyes. Just think about uh, that. You know what? Uh, t- to be honest, I mean, I don't know how many people's deaths this podcast is responsible for, but it can only increase. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, but Harry, not everyone hates us. You'll be glad to know. We Thanks, Mum. <laughs> oh, my mum sent me after your slanderous rap video you made last week. <laughs> yeah, with me saying that euthanasia <laughs> is important to me. My mum sent me a, a video of her dancing with headphones on listening to the podcast. <laughs> your behaviour has led to that. I'm starved now. Oh, that is brilliant. Complained that I hadn't given her a shout out because, you know, this is all about her. Shout out to Mrs. Payne. Yeah. And a shout out to Mrs. Ekman as well. Yeah. Who is both my wife and my mum. That sounded wrong. (laughs) (laughs) They're two separate people. They both have the same surname. (laughs) Moving on. Um, (laughs) Moving on. Harry, not everyone hates us. We've passed the 500 downloads mark. We are way past it. We're nearly at 700. Wow. I know. That's amazing. Amazing, amazing. Thank you, everyone, for downloading and listening. Thank you, everyone, and to our new Russian listener. Particularly. Particularly. Sergey, it's lovely to have you. <laughs> Sick. But Harry, yes. who have we got this week, my man, on the podcast? This is going to be a Well, one. I think you already know because we mentioned it last week. Clearly, you haven't listened to the podcast. But <laughs> we have the amazing Brian Faulkner. Now, as you know, Matt, when we first talked about this podcast, yes. we talked about having it feel like 
we're sitting in a pub or a bar having a beer with people that are involved in animal welfare, like it's at the evening end of a conference, and we're just sitting about chatting, sharing our stories. Yeah. Now, in my mind, Brian Faulkner was the one person that came to mind because I've done that with Brian. I've sat in a bar and listened to Brian's stories. And so for me, this podcast was just joyous because Brian is one of my favorite people. He has been working in animal welfare for decades. He is an absolute legend in the field of dog welfare, dog population management, dog behavior, capture and humane release. He's an amazing person. He's worked with the biggest organizations in the world, Whisper, Royal Society Protection of Animals, Dogs Trust. He's been pretty much everywhere in the world. And in this podcast, he talks about all the places he's visited, the experiences he's had through his time in the Navy, all the way up to consultancy work and visiting countries and training governments and people in dog population management. The stories, the anecdotes that he's told are just incredible. I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this podcast and I hope all the listeners do as well. I thoroughly enjoyed it too. So should we get on with it? This is episode six of the Animal Chat podcast with Mr. Brian Faulkner. voluntary stuff overseas whilst I was still in local government. I, I worked in, um, uh, bloody, what was my first trip? <laughs> oh, Puerto Rico. That was my first proper international trip. And that was in the mid-90s, about 94, 95. I did some work for an American organisation, purely voluntary. Then I Whisper contacted me and I did a couple of trips for them, but I was still working for local government. But they actually paid me as a consultant. Wow. And I did a trip. This is before I actually become a member of staff at Whisper. I did a trip to Egypt, to Cairo, and I did a trip to Brasov in Romania. And then Kosovo happened and uh, they contacted me. They said they wanted to do a project in Kosovo. So I went out there with loads of Deutschmarks because that was a currency out there at the time. Found a site, established a dog shelter, trained some local captures as well the place was overrun with dogs. I don't know if you know the history of Kosovo. What happened was the, the Serbian paramilitaries, it wasn't Serbian forces, it was the Serbian paramilitaries, and they went through all the houses, all the Albanian houses, and they literally gave everyone an hour to leave. And that's why you had this max exodus of people leaving Kosovo, and they went to neighbouring Macedonia and also to Albania. And... Uh, I left everything behind, including the dogs. And the native breed of that region is the Chaplinina, a big livestock guarding dog. And of course, they went roaming looking for food, uh, come down into the towns, and the place was literally overrun with these huge, great, bloody livestock guarding dogs. Beautiful dogs, but very, very powerful. Um, so that's the dogs that we was focusing on because we knew when the Albanians would come back, which they did, and when they actually did come back, it's recorded somewhere that it was the largest mass immigration of refugees returning to their own country. It was literally living on the borders anyway, in either in Macedonia or in Albania. The ones in the villages, they wanted to get their lives back together again, and they wanted dogs, and we had them. So I run that project for two years uh, backwards and forwards. Uh, as of, What years was that, Brian? Uh, from 1999 to 2001. Uh, I was there initially for something like three months, four months, and then I succumbed back. Whisper then was based in Langley Lane at Vauxhall, and uh, I succumbed back. I used to have a week's leave, and then old Andrew Dixon, the old boss of Whisper at the time, they called me their firefighter. So any dog projects literally around the world, they'd send me off to. So in between trips to Kosovo, so go to Kosovo then uh, about once a month, basically to take a load of money over to pay people. 
uh, make sure everything was okay, buy food, make sure everything's all running okay, and bookwork, all the all the admin was up to date. And that's how it was for two years after after that initial visit. Was there once a month, check everything all right. I'd be staying there for about four or five days, back to the UK. And in between times, they were sending me other places. So they were busy, busy, very, very interesting times and made a big change from local government from where I actually come from. So, yeah. I was just going to take you slightly back to the, the, the Kosovo work you did, Brian, in that, yeah. assuming when we're talking about we had a lot of people who were forced out, when these refugees came back to where they were forced from, what were the community's relationship with the dog? In, in the villages, in the mountain villages, and, and I mean, it's like stepping back a hundred or so years in these villages. It, there was no up in them places. There's no electric, you know, very, very basic. And there were farming communities. They obviously, they welcomed the dogs. The dogs were part of their tools. Okay, they, they weren't treated like pets by any stretch of the imagination. They lived outside in all weathers. They got their food, but they were very, very loyal dogs to the farmers. They welcomed them. In the towns... There, the the people tolerated the dog. I think there was no abuse at all. I didn't see any abuse on on any animals. To be quite honest, whilst I was there, uh, I've seen it. I've been to other places. I did uh, some work in Sierra Leone after the the wars there, um, and I did see it there. And there it was horrific. I I saw dead bodies on the ground, and I've never seen so many amputees in in my life. It, that was awful. And yeah, the, the the dogs there, other animals there were treated badly. I, I know I've digressed, but Whisper was running a, a chimpanzee sanctuary in Sierra Leone, and that's what we went out there for to check, not nothing to do with dogs, to check on these chimps in the sanctuary. And people were trying to get in, and they was trying to take things out on the baby chimps. The, the adult ones obviously were too bloody big. You want to take them on at all? <laughs> it, it it did happen to a degree there, but I didn't see anything like that in, in Kosovo. Prior to that, Brian, you worked in local government and you were um, doing dog catching and handling in the yep. UK. What got you into that in the first place? <laughs> you served in the Navy previously. Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, if anyone said to me when I left school at 15 that I would spend the majority of my life travelling around the world and working on dog control programmes, and I'd have just said, it's <laughs> <No. laughs> I did. I joined the. I, I was 15 years of age when I joined the Navy. Um, that, that was the school leaving age then, uh, 15, and I went to HMS Ganges, which is a, a boys' training establishment near Ipswich, and I did 12 months there, and then I joined the fleet properly. I did 12 years in the Navy, and apart from having a dog at home when I was a kid, uh, I still remember her now. Her name was Judy, little black and white mongrel thing. Um, before that, my dad had a Scotty dog. You don't see Scotty dogs much nowadays, do you? No, you don't. <laughs> so, yeah, my dad had this Scotty dog. So that, that was my only interactions with, with dogs until I was, in, I was on HMS Kent. This was in the 1960s, the year of the World Cup, 1966. Mm. And um, we went to Japan and we was in Tokyo Bay and we had a typhoon warning. It was called Typhoon Tracy. And... The powers that be in the United Kingdom, because HMS Kent was a guided missile destroyer, it's quite a large, hefty ship. The boffins in the UK wanted us to put to sea and go through the eye of this typhoon, because uh, they wanted us to do all sorts of things, and that's what we did, And uh, which was a pretty amazing thing to be. I, I had a fortune to go up on the bridge and when we was actually in the eye, because when you go in through one side of the typhoon, the wind's coming from one direction, and then when you go through the eye, Everything's dead. No, no radio communications, no radar, no nothing, because nothing can get out and nothing can get in. You come out the other side, the wind's coming from the opposite direction. So this is all this stuff that we was recording, and we took one hell of a beating. Now, you're probably wondering, what's all this got to do with fucking dogs? <laughs> well, I had everything to do with dogs, because we had to put into Singapore for a mini refit. We got battered around so much that uh, well, parts of the ship we weren't even seaworthy. And we were stuck in Singapore for three, four months. And it was given us all things to do around different military establishments around the island, Singapore Island. And there was an army camp and Royal Marine camp, at a place called Nisun. And they had a dog section there. And it was my job to clean out the dog kennels, picking up the dog shit, scrubbing the dog shit from the floor. <laughs> and I actually, believe it or not, I actually enjoyed it. 
but there's the interaction with the dogs. And there were mainly German Shepherd dogs that we were using out there at the time. I got involved with the dog trainers at that place, uh, military dog trainers. You know, and I started handling the dogs while I was there, just just playing around, really. And uh, I really, really enjoyed it. The not-so-enjoyable side was in Singapore and in Malaysia, and it was more or less... Singapore was independent, but they were a lot more closely integrated than what they are today. We used to have dog shooting parties, British troops, uh, because rabies and dogs on the island, they wanted to control it, and especially around the military areas. And Singapore in the 1960s was basically it was one huge military base, British military base. Yeah, I've been there. I've done it. I've been out with a 303 Lee Enfield. That was a rifle we used at the time. And we were shooting the dogs. I fucking hated it. I remember the first time I did it, and it wasn't a regular thing, but the first time, tears were running down my face. And I remember even then, I didn't know anything about dog control or anything. I was about 18 years of age, thinking, there's got to be a better way. There's got to be a better way. So I've been, I've done it. I have shot dogs. So... When I, eventually, I, 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 did, I did 12 years in the Navy, and I did, I did bits and pieces. I, I went self-employed as a painter and decorator and all that lot. And then a friend of mine, who was, uh, he, was a, he was a dog handler for Dorset Police, he came around and said, Brian, he said, you was on about German Shepherds. He said, we've got this German Shepherd bitch. She's about six months of age. We don't have bitches in our force anyway, he said, but she's very, very timid for us. He said, she's available if you want her. So I went round and there's this poor bitch, her name was Jara, I, and I had her, she was about 13 years old when she went. And she was, she was very, very, very timid. And I brought her home. And the first night, where they, where they found her, the breeder that had her, she was basically just living in a shed. No social interaction at all. Missed out all the vital socialisation period, all that lot. Nothing. And she was absolutely terrified. Everything. Well, when I did bring her home, she was in our kitchen and she just sat on the floor in the corner, huddled in the corner. So I thought, well, I won't put any pressure on her. I didn't know much about dogs at that time at all. I just sat on the floor. I sort of threw a few tidbits and let her come across to me. And, but, and I sat there all night, all night long. And by the morning, I was, a, I was sitting on the floor. My wife, she, she, she come down and saw me. My head was on the floor and Jara was head stretched across my legs. So we sort of bonded, really bonded. And my wife always said she was my dog. She never got close to my wife. She was okay, but not really, really close. And when I started taking her out, I remember there was a vacant shop. So I just stood in the doorway. She was surrounded on three sides with nothing because the shop was shut. Just to let her watch traffic going up and down, let people going, walking past, all the rest of it. And I was just making a fuss of her at the time. And slowly, 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 I brought her around and I joined a dog training club. And eventually I was working Jara in, in working trials. We didn't get to any high levels, but for a dog that come from that background, I, I thought I, I achieved quite a lot with her. She was great with other people eventually. She, she really, really turned herself around. She was absolutely wonderful dog. So that's what got me into dogs. From that, I got an interest into dog training. So now we're sort of coming up to the mid-80s, and there was a, an article in our local newspaper saying that East Dorset District Council are considering appointing a dog warden. The job, it hadn't even been posted then. So I wrote to them, I wrote a letter to them, and I actually sort of put down how I could see the role of a dog warden, what I would like to do. Well... They did advertise it, but I had a letter for an interview without even applying through the official channel sort of thing. And Steve Duckett, who was the head of environmental health there, he looked at the letter and he said, the questions we was going to ask you, you've already answered them anyway in the letter that you wrote us. And he said, right, OK, I'll let you know. I'd only been home about two hours when the phone went. He said, you got the job. That's how I got into local government, really. Thoroughly enjoyed the job. Uh, and I become an animal welfare officer. They, they sent me on different courses and that. And then eventually I wasn't just responsible for stray dogs uh, and enforcing legislation. I was uh, inspecting the, the pet shops, horse riding establishments, dog breeding establishments, boarding kennels. We used to work very closely with the RSPCA on animal cruelty cases, things like that. 
how did that transition, Brian? Because obviously there's a big difference between being a, a welfare officer in the East Dorset region of the UK, where there's not packs of street dogs that need to be caught, and then transitioning into what it is that you do now. How did that transition happen? Because <laughs> that's a big step, isn't it? It was a very big step, and I was on a very, very, very sharp learning curve, Harry. <laughs> I remember going to Puerto Rico that first voluntary visit, and there was two of us picked out in the UK, myself and a guy sadly passed away now, Nigel Cardwell, who was animal welfare officer for the city of Belfast. And out of all the voluntary applicants, only myself and Nigel was picked. And it was a big mission in Puerto Rico because uh, oh, the island was overrun with stray dogs. And uh, we was working with 20 American animal control officers and a couple of Canadian animal control officers. And it was a big mass exercise. And, and Nigel and me were the token Europeans on this visit. And the dogs there, they were difficult to catch. And I thought then I was using things like snappy snares, uh, which weren't so common in the UK then. Uh, traps, you couldn't get near the dogs, but we caught, we caught an awful lot. We neutered an awful lot. Unfortunately, we had to put to sleep an awful lot because uh, there's a problem in many of the Caribbean islands have got it. There's a problem. They, it's called blastomycosis, which is like a fungal the skin disease. You see it in the tropics a lot. It's so expensive to treat. The body is just a mass of open sores. It's mm. awful. So those dogs, unfortunately, we had to put to sleep. But yeah, I, I come away from Puerto Rico thinking, blimey, I'd have to start thinking outside the box on this one. And I got back into my little comfort zone in the UK. And then Whisper contacted me and I mentioned I went to Cairo for them. And I, I'll never, I'll never, ever forget this time. I was with, with a guy who eventually became my boss at Whisper, Trevor Wheeler. Do you remember Trevor? Of course, yeah, I remember Yeah, Trevor. yeah, yeah. He was eventually my boss. And we, we're still good buddies now. We went out in the morning. Whisper at the time was doing what they called pet respect conferences. And it was the brainchild of Joy Leaney. And we went out for a walk, and I would had a slip leash in my pocket. We was walking up around by the pyramids. No tourist was around. It was early in the morning, and we had a conference later on that day. So we just wanted to get out the hotel, stretch our legs, and set a bimble about. And the dogs up around by the pyramids, because of the tourists, the nap and feed them, they were relatively friendly. They'd come close to you. And this little stray bitch, a little bitch it was, she she come over. We were stroking her, and we'd give her a couple of bits to eat. And she rolled over on her back, you know, the belly rubbed and all the rest of it. And Trevor said to me, put a slip leash on her. I said, what? He said, we could bring her back to the conference. Say, look, we've caught one already. My God. I put this slip leash on this dog and she changed within a split second from <laughs> lovely, adoring little dog you could think of to some manic, bloody monster, teeth, your old fang, wrapped herself in a ball. And I let go, last I saw her, she was herring out into the desert with this bloody leash wrapped around her neck. So, yeah, so I thought, again, I've got to start learning a little bit more here. So I just started thinking a little bit about different catching techniques and how to do it. I'm a big fan of nets now. Mm. I've used a little bit of, uh, shall we say, science in habituating dogs to equipment in certain locations, and that's a, another little story I can say. The dog catchers, they keep going there, same old, same old. They get out their vans, they run around, and whatever equipment they use, it might be nets, it might be poles, or whatever. The dogs, they've seen it all before, and they literally just freak out, and they're gone. If you speak to any dog catcher anywhere in the world, I, now I usually ask this question, do the dogs seem to know your vehicle? Yes, they always say yes. And I explain to them about habituation and all the rest of it, and you can turn that on its head. By if you're working with dogs that have never been caught before or dogs that have been infrequently caught, you can actually habituate them to the equipment that you carry. And I actually carried this experiment. It was an experiment, but it actually worked. It was I did a trip to Dominica for I-4. I went to Russia for I-4 and I went to Dominica for them. Basically, in Dominica, it was a blank canvas for me because the dogs had never, ever been caught. But there was a guy that worked for I-4 and he wanted uh, the stray dog problem on his island or where his family did to be sort of sorted out humanely. And the mayor of Rousseau, which is the capital of Dominica, 
he recognised there was a problem. There was wanting to get more cruise ships in there, but he didn't want loads of mangy-looking dogs hanging around because it put the tourists off, in his words. So I4 contracted me to go there, and I did a survey. We did some workshops, and I picked two people whilst I was there at a small training workshop, and we ordered a load of equipment from the States, or I4 did, and I said, right, all I want you to do well, I'm going back to the UK. I'll be back in about three or four weeks' time. And basically, it was a spayathon. I'll explain. I explained what they was doing. I four was going to return. It was going to bring a load of vets from the United States. In fact, they brought two, and uh, they was going to train some local veterinarians in uh, small animal spaying techniques, so that they could sort of leave a legacy behind. But they didn't have any facilities to keep the dogs. So basically, the dogs were brought in. They were neutered kept as soon as they come, basically, post see if they seemed okay, we'd let them out again. So it was quick. There was out. Most of them were out 24 hours, and that's quite often the case in many Asian countries as well. If you haven't got the facilities to keep them, it's better they're out and recover slowly on the streets than it is keeping them in. So what it was, it meant was we had to bring dogs in on a daily basis. So we said to go out early, bring a batch of dogs in for the vets to work on. If I remember, we used to go out in the evening because uh, one of the guys used to stay with them overnight so that their guts weren't full of any food for the vets the following day for obvious reasons, throwing up under the anaesthetic. Now, these people, they'd hardly caught any dogs. Never, never done it. So what I did was, when I went back to the UK, I said to Inel and Samuel, they were the two catchers that I picked, I said, all I want you to do is find the hotspots in the town where the dogs are and do a set route, go around every day, hit the same spot at the same time every day and feed the dogs. Nothing else. So when I come back, we'll raise the game a little bit. And I came back about just over a week before the spayathon was going to start. And so when I come back, the dogs were there. They were eagerly waiting for the grub because they're by then they've been feeding the dogs for the best part two, three weeks. And we started then carrying the equipment around with us. So the dogs learnt to ignore the equipment. And I, I've got photographs, I've taken photographs of dogs there before the spayathon started, sitting in the net eating food, putting their head through a slip leash to eat food off the ground the other side. The dogs were totally habituated to all the equipment we carried. So we didn't catch all the dogs, but I would say we hit our target that I4 wanted without a problem. In fact, we went over our target Dominica was a blank canvas for me, so it gave me an opportunity to do something I'd, I'd thought about for a long time, but had never been in a place to do it. And I did it, and it worked. So I, I quite often refer back to that. So talking about catching, it, it's you have to sort of think outside the box. And even now, and I've been doing this game for a bloody long time, I'm still learning when I go to some places. You always have to maintain an open mind. No one knows it all. No one knows it all. And I'm always prepared to listen, observe and learn. And I always say in my workshops, I'm not here to teach you. And say A lot of the time, the guys there have been catching dogs, just that they haven't been doing it maybe humanely. I always say to them, look, I'm here. I'm just like you guys. I've just had the opportunity to travel around a bit, see a lot more things than probably you have. So I'm just here to share my experiences with you. And that's the way I've always played it. Uh, and also building up a good relationship with the people that you're working with. Brian, I think it'd be a really good point as well now to explain to people listening, why is it important that stray dog programs exist? Because, you know, I work for yeah. dog charity myself. You know, Harry's very involved in this as well. But for some people that may be, you know, for example, in the UK, stray dogs, you know, we still get them, but it's not like it was in the 80s when there were packs. Yeah, latchkey Manchester. dogs. Yeah, latch, exactly, latchkey dogs. So why is it important that people like Whisper were running programs in countries abroad? And what were the alternatives that were being used before you came along and these communities were fortunate for you to come and work with them? What was happening beforehand to these dogs and also the people that were living with these dogs? I learned a lot about relationships with people and dogs in, in India. And I've worked in India quite a few times, actually. Now, as you know, in India, Hindu country and all living things are, they don't like killing, especially the Jain community in India, they don't like killing anything. But they sort of had double standards as a way with, with the dog control. A lot of people did love dogs, there was many dog fevers there. But also, the Indian people, the, the municipalities there, they, it was 
bloody horrific. And when I first went there, and I was working with the Blue Cross of India, Chini Krishna. They was catching a dog bloody humanely, and some of the equipment, I've seen one with a, a bare wire with a club on the end, and there's a catch a dog on the bare wire and smack the dog across the head with a lump of wood. Horrific, and it was electrocuting the dogs. To me, actually, electrocuting the dogs wasn't that shocking because I was a kid in the UK and veterinary practices was electrocuting dogs because that's the only way they could put the dogs to sleep before we had barbiturates. I'm talking about 1950s. People forget that. When going back to India, seeing dogs being electrocuted was fucking awful, to be quite frank, and I mean awful. Now, that's why... Chile was so pushing the ABC programs in India. I think Chennai was the first place to adopt it, the Blue Cross of India. But it was so stupid because he was running a parallel program to the municipality. He was going out with his guys, catching the dogs, neutering them in the ABC program before they actually now their law in India. Um, but at that time, the NGOs there used to run parallel programs to the municipalities. So they used to go out and catch the dogs neuter them, invest money in them, neuter them, putting them back on the street, and the municipalities come along, catch them, and kill them. Absolutely ridiculous. So on that side of it, now, so you're talking to me is, why Whisper and other NGOs, international NGOs, wanted to get involved, basically to stop the horrific treatment of stray dogs in terms of catching, in terms of promoting the use of barbiturates, Unfortunately, barbiturates are not licensed everywhere in the world to this day. So that, was, and also, of course, was rabies. But I know in the early days, Whisper being, uh, it's, it's an animal welfare organisation, not primarily a public health organisation. But the only way that we could actually promote it and to get the governments to listen is to put it up as a way of combating rabies. And we used to use that dreaded word that we've used recently in the UK about this bloody virus, herd immunity. Where the theory was catch, vaccinate, minimum of 70% of any given population, neuter a minimum of 70% of any given population. And by in so doing so, that would develop herd immunity among the dogs. So it acts as a buffer for rabies to spread. And also it brings the dog population down to manageable levels. So it's not what we was talking about, is don't ever try to eradicate a stray dog. If you've got many, many, many stray dogs in your country, India is a prime example, it's a waste of time trying to eradicate it. You have to try and manage the problem, and that's the only way that you're going to do it. So that's where the NGOs was coming from. Basically, they hooked onto the rabies stuff in latter years, really, but their primary motive was to try to stop the the bad catching, the cruelty behind it all, and the cruel ways of putting dogs to sleep. And I've seen many dogs killed. And, and to be quite honest, and I've done it myself, uh, and I, I in Cairo, when I went to Cairo for Whisper, they were shooting the dogs on the streets at that time. And I've seen it in Malaysia, uh, not this recent trip to Malaysia, but I was there about 12 years ago, and there was shooting dogs there. And the actual gun in one municipality, the gun was donated by the UK RSPCA because the other methods that they were killing dogs was Epsom salts being injected into the heart, which was absolutely appalling. The dog died in agony. So it was more humane, and it is a gunshot applied correctly. Aesthetically, is bloody horrible, but in terms of pain, the dog doesn't know a thing about it. And what is euthanasia? It means good death. And if the dog is not even aware that it's going to die, that dog does not feel a thing. So I've seen it being done correctly, and I've seen it done very, very badly when they use rifles on the streets and things like that, where quite frequently a dog runs off injured and dies a horrible, long, slow death. So gunshot in itself, if it's done properly, a pistol at close range, and these are the same pistols, the RSPCA inspectors, they have them, they're licensed to use their single-shot Weblis, and they carry them in a locked box, usually to dispatch an injured fox or something like that. It's a hard thing for people not involved in animal welfare to wrap their heads around. And even those of us that have been working in the sector for a long time, it still sits uncomfortably because you don't get into this line of work with the intention of thinking about the death of animals. We're in it to save them. But as the phrase goes, death is not a welfare issue. It's the exactly. build up to it exactly. and the things around it. And so when you're talking about the humanest way, obviously those of us 
in a, a well-supported veterinary environment in the UK, you take your dog when the time has come and it is euthanized and in the best of times it's sedated and it's surrounded by its loved ones and it's a very peaceful release. But the point of death, the quicker it is, the less suffering there is yeah. for the dog. But I wanted to pick up on something you said, Brian, because obviously you've been involved in this and you've seen these transitions and these changes and you were at the start of many of them. I mean, when you were talking before about uh, mm. habituation and that was something that just wasn't really done and is very much part of the playbook now and you were at the beginnings of that for certain. But when you talk about going to these other countries and the methods that they use and being killed on the street and then transitioning into these other more appropriate methods that are now established parts of dog population management, linking things to like public health and rabies, looking at humane alternatives, providing the right equipment. This has now been going on for as long as you have been involved yeah. in this, certainly. And there are huge advances around the world and there are amazing projects and incredible people doing these wonderful things. Joy Lee and her work in Jamshapur in India, taking what you were talking about, habituation and handling the dogs and minimal restraint to Sam and Mark in Sri Lanka and the work that they're doing there. But there are still so many places that are, as you described originally, where you have NGOs desperately trying to catch dogs and sterilize them, whilst at the same time the government is going around <laughs> shooting them because there is a fear of rabies, because there's an overpopulation of dogs. And so why is it that some places are recognizing the need for this, whereas others are still so firmly rooted in the practices that have A, been disproved, and are B, harking back to 20, 30, 40 years yeah, ago? Yeah, I, it's, it's quite correct. I, I often, certainly when I'm working in a country, Malaysia, for example, is just starting to see the light, I hope. And so I've just returned from Salangor, which is what's well, part of Kuala Lumpur, really. And the, the government there, they are slowly introducing a limited catch, neuter, release program. Two years ago, I was in eastern uh, Malaysia, Borneo, and there's a project, uh, Nikki Stevens from IAPA, International Animal Welfare Protections. She, she runs two projects, one in Borneo and one in Penang. And the government in Borneo, all part of Malaysia, they openly accepted catch due to release, gone against the federal government's guidelines, because it's still there that in some parts they keep the dogs for a couple of days. In many parts of Malaysia, they kill the dogs almost as soon as they're caught. But they're slowly, slowly changing, I hope. A lot of it is culture. A lot of it is religion. Probably goes hand in hand. As I mentioned earlier on, I... The most difficult countries that I've worked in has been Islamic countries, for sure, because they regard dogs as haram. If you want to train catchers, they don't want to touch the dogs anyway. And in Cairo, it was difficult. And uh, now I just say, wear gloves. You're not touching the dogs then. But they still don't want to touch dogs. One of my claims to fame, and this is true, we was in Dubai. Now, in theory, there should be no stray dogs in Dubai. Because the, the Arab population, they don't like the dogs. They don't want the dogs. Many cats, lots of cats. But the stray dog problem in Dubai is caused by British expatriates and some German expatriates and some Australian. Because they go there, they're there for, say, six months to a year. Uh, they have a dog. They might bring a dog in from a neighbouring country as a family pet. And when they get relocated back to the UK, they don't want to pay for quarantine and all the rest of it. So they say to their um, their housekeeper, and they've all got these Filipino housekeepers, it just goes to the territory, I'll give you some Durham, uh, some money, uh, look after the dog until the next people arrive. So what does the housekeeper do as soon as they on that flight? The money goes in her pocket and the dog's kicked out the back door. That's where the stray dog problem comes from in many of the Gulf states. And it was old Dr. Hisham, he's the head of veterinary health there, Sadly, he's passed away now, but he was a smashing guy. And uh, it was him that said, he said, we wouldn't have stray dogs if it wasn't for Europeans that come in here, bringing their dogs here, then abandon them. And one of my claims to fame was a group of uh, expatriate NGO there called Canine Concern or something like that. And uh, we did this workshop. Ali and I did this workshop for them. And uh, one of the biggest claims to fame that Whisper claimed 
And a lot of that was down to, not to me, but it was down to um, Trevor and Alice there, Alice and me, was we managed to get the, the dog catching side. It used to be in their pest control department, but we managed to get it changed to their veterinary department. That immediately, that had more or less an immediate change because you could say that dogs and cats were no longer regarded as pests, regarded as sentient beings. You know, just a simple thing like that is changing the department who actually dealt with the problem, it had a, a positive impact. So Dr. Hisham, who was their head of their veterinary services, he inherited his job of suddenly having to deal with stray dogs and stray cats. When you're out in Dubai, he used to wear the proper Arab robes, you know, with the headdress and all the long flowing robes and what have you. But me and him sort of built up quite a good relationship. And he used to come to England uh, occasionally. And whenever he came, he used to phone me up at Whisper and we used to meet him if he was wearing Western clothes then. First, we'd always meet him in a pub because he used to love scotch. Out there, he, he couldn't drink it, but he used to love a drop of scotch whenever he came to England. But I actually got him. I said to the, these women from this NGO, before this week's out, I'm going to get Dr. Hisham to stroke one of your dogs. I said, you'd never do it. If you wait and see, I'll get him to stroke. I just had this gut feeling. I think I thought he would do it for me. So we did the workshop. And on the final day, we were saying thanks to everyone. And I said, oh, Dr. Hisham, I said, a very special vote of thanks to whatever the dog was called, because he's participated so well, next, et cetera. I said, but, but you're going to have to stroke him. He looked at me. He looked, and everyone went quiet. Like, I actually challenged him to stroke the dog. Bugger me, he did. He actually looked at me and he little grin and he slowly, slowly, tentatively ran his hand down the dog's back. That was enough. That was enough. So it's trying to work with people, working with them, not work against them or force them to do things against their beliefs, against their culture. Actually, I always maintain before you can make any changes in any community, you've got to gain their trust. Gain their trust, you gain their respect and work with them. That's the only way that you can bring about change, really. Such an important message, isn't it, Harry? It really is. It absolutely hit the nail on the head there, Brian. So, Brian, Harry has teased me by saying that you were involved in some of the Chernobyl work. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. This I love this story, Brian, if you want to share this. This is just incredible. Yeah, it was Dog's Trust sent me there. Um, it was an American organization, Clean Futures Fund, which was an environmental organization. And they've been working in Chernobyl, well, helping clean up the site, basically. And they've been working there for a number of years. And it wasn't that many dogs actually there that we sort of knew about. It was about 250 to 300 dogs. But you got the, you got the reactor. And people don't realize the reactor's not functioning, obviously. But the power plant, the electrical generating station, is still functioning. It's still working. And uh, people still travel in every day to work in the power plant because it supplies quite a lot of Ukraine for their electricity. And the old capital of Chernobyl is uh, Pripyat, which is that's the town where you see all these the, the Ferris wheel and the Dodgems and all the buildings. And that's the old city that was the old Soviet city that was destroyed and evacuated immediately. But they built a brand new town called Slavutich. And it's, it's about a 40 minute train ride from Chernobyl. And that's where we stayed was in Slavutich. And the train, you get on it, it's a direct line straight into the power plant in Chernobyl, and you have to go through part of Belarus. So you come out of Slavutich, cross the top of Ukraine, one stop in Ukraine, and then you cut through Belarus, it doesn't stop at all in Belarus, and then into the Chernobyl power plant area. They test you for radiation on the way in and on the way out, and uh, it was bloody hot. It was like 42, 43 degrees when I was out there, and I've never, ever seen anything like it in all my life. You've got the area around the reactor, the old reactor, and they've got a 10-kilometre exclusion zone around that, all the way around. It's like a big circle. And anything in that exclusion zone, you're limited on the amount of time that you can spend there because it's still parts of it, not all of it, but parts of it are still heavily contaminated. And the most contaminated part was an area that they call the Red Forest. But I've never, ever seen 
anything like it. It's the most difficult terrain, and I've worked in some difficult terrains in other parts of the world, but I've ever, ever encountered because all the roads, it's still there. But what was once a six-lane highway, because of the vegetation encroaching on it, now looks like a country lane. It's all overgrown. And it's weird. They say that in the winter, it's better to, you can see more in the winter because you know leaves on the trees and we was there in the middle of summer. But you sort of glance up and you see an old sign saying school. And you push through the trees and the undergrowth and there's this huge bloody old building half fallen down. That was once the school. You know, all, all these buildings, a whole city, a whole city that had been evacuated literally in hours. It just went. I mentioned Kosovo earlier on, but I think that lot, they went out a lot quicker than what the Albanians did. Everything was left behind. Everything. And the wildlife live within this environment. One of the most fascinating things is round by the old reactor, they got these cooling ponds. You know, when the reactor was functioning, they had these uh, water. It's cooled by water flowing around. So the cooling ponds are still there and the water's still there. And they've got these huge mutant catfish in the water. They are weird as hell. And all the workers there, they throw bits of bread now just to see these things leaping out the water at you. But they've got herds of wild horse there, perfectly okay. Wolves, bears, and of course, the dogs. Most of the dogs hang around the security posts that are throughout the region. In terms of catching, we had to resort to chemical capture. I'm not a big fan of chemical capture, but it's another tool in your toolbox. So when I first arrived, they just started doing it. You know, it's using the wrong type of dart. Um, you've got two types of dart. You've got the straight dart and you've got what's called a barb dart. Uh, so it's got a barb. So when the dart hits, it doesn't fall out. The barb hooks on into the dog's flesh. And in areas like that, you can get these darts now. They've got a little microchip thing in them and you've got a thing on your phone. So you can track where the dog's gone. Uh, so when it eventually goes to sleep, you can find where the dog is. Just track it on your device. And he'd never even thought of this. I said, what's your biggest problem? He said, well, the dog get hit by the darts, but they go into the vegetation and we can't find them again. I said, well, I'm not surprised. You know, a lot of the dogs we were catching were round by the feeding stations where we could see them, but lots of dogs that was in that. We, you couldn't see a foot in front of you, Harry. You really, really couldn't. But when they went back this second time, I sent them some links where to source these barbed darts with the little radio transmitter things on to get the others. Out of the population that we could estimate, we probably caught about 90% caught and neutered. And say that as long as you get in excess of 70%, then you're, you're almost there. We had these guys from some, some of these big scientific places in the United States. And while the dogs was out for surgery, while we were neutering them, they were doing all sorts of tests on them, checking for radiation levels. And they was taking their blood samples. And, you know, it was quite a big scientific project because these scientists wanted to know how, after all these years, how radiation had affected a permanent population of animals that lived there. And dogs were the most manageable animals they could get hold of. So it served a very, very useful purpose in terms of research as well. But it, I'd never, ever thought I'd ever go there. It was on my bucket list. And I actually did it, you know, like many other places. I've, I've ticked many boxes in my career. But, yeah, that was one of the more fascinating places. Absolutely fascinating. What an amazing experience. Amazing. So, Brian, just thinking about your, your career and all the amazing places you've been to, thinking about emotional resilience, you've seen so much. You've been to, like you were talking before about Sierra Leone, seeing mm -hmm. people that have been killed. You're going to sites like Chernobyl, all these places around the world. I can't even imagine the suffering you've seen with the dogs, but also the suffering to do with people. Emotional resilience is a really big topic in animal welfare at the moment. How have you been able to cope with seeing so much over you know, such an incredible career? What have you done to maintain your sanity almost? Uh, Harry knows me a little bit. He knows that I've got a very, very dark sense of humour, I think. Is that true, Harry? It certainly is. Yeah. I think that's common for a lot of us that work in animal welfare. It's a, it's a big coping mechanism. Yeah, it is a coping mechanism. And a glass or two of beer at night helps as well. I, I will tell you the story. The dog that I have dreamt about over the years and I've actually shed tears over, it was a dog that forced me or made me leave local government in the UK. When the Dangerous Dogs Act first came in, 
back in the early 90s. And there was a dog called Jaffa, a pit bull. And he was a pit bull. This dog, the, the guy that adopted, he adopted him from the RSPCA. So no beating about the bush. It was down on Jaffa's papers from the RSPCA that he was down as a pit bull. It was perfectly legal to own one until the Roxana Can case where that pit bull killed her and they rushed in that fucking awful piece of legislation. Oh, you might have to edit that bit, Aaron. Uh, no, no, it's a fucking awful piece of legislation. <laughs> the Dangerous Dogs Act. And it all started with a neighbour's dispute. The, the owner of Jaffa was an Australian guy, nice guy, wife, couple of kids, and he had an argument with his neighbour over a boundary fence. And I mean, when you work in local government, things like fences, it... I don't know, people just go crazy over it. He built, he put up a new fence and I think it encroached about two inches onto his next door neighbour's property. So they had a Barney. And by that time, he'd adopted Jaffa and the Dangerous Dogs Act had come in. Now, he was an Australian guy, the owner of Jaffa, and basically he was an idiot because he never registered him. He had the opportunity to register Jaffa. Now, the neighbour phoned up the local authority i.e. me, and he said, my next-door neighbour's got a pit bull. And I went along there, and I said, I'm sorry, mate, it's not registered. I'm going to have to seize your dog. And I had a policeman with me in attendance, and I said, you're going to have to sign the dog over to me, otherwise we'll get a warrant from the court and we'll can remove your dog. Look, mate, he said, can you just hang on? My little girl's coming home from school in an hour's time. Can you just hang on so my little girl can see the dog for one last time? I said, yep, no problem. And while I'm talking to him, I'm sitting on his settee and there's Jaffa up beside me licking my ear. He's all over me, slobbering all over me. He was a wonderful, wonderful dog. And this guy, he signed the dog over to me and I, I took it to the vets and Jaffa was put to sleep. I can cry that night. It was such a wonderful, wonderful, beautiful dog. Uh, I probably, out of all the things I've seen, and I've seen some god-awful things in this world, but the thing that impacted on me most was Jaffa. Say, that was a long, long, long time ago now. Uh, that's that image of him, of me sitting on that guy's settee with Jaffa licking my ear and all the rest of it, is burnt into my memory. I'll never forget it. Never. So I'm a bit tearful at the moment. That's really heartbreaking. Really appreciate you sharing that, Brian. When you think about the changes that have taken place in the years that you've been working on this and that you've been part of, when you think about the future, like the work that's happening now, based on your experience, what are the things that you think need to happen still and what do you hope is going to happen? I think in recent years, one of the... One of the biggest changes is the OIE involvement in Stray Dog Control, World Organization for Animal Health. Um, I'm on their platform as one of their speakers and attend their OIE meetings. What the OIE do, primarily there is for agricultural animals, but they got involved with Stray Dog Control purely for rabies because rabies impacts on agricultural animals as well. A lot of people outside of animal don't think, you know, it affects all warm-blooded animals. So in many places where there's high levels of rabies, it affects their livestock. They get it as well. So they got involved with stray dog control, but they wanted it to be done humanely. So they came up with the OIE guidelines on stray dog control. And the guidelines were basically what I've been preaching for bloody donkey's years. And basically, we, we have these uh, workshops where... All the people that matter in different countries, regional, like the, the one we had in Georgia last year, with the exception of Russia, that for political reasons just refused to attend, although they are a member of the OIE. All the regional countries, Georgia, Azerbaijan, Turkey was represented, um, even Armenia. Armenia is still fighting a war with bloody Azerbaijan. They, don't, they do not discuss anything on any level, but... Both Azerbaijan and Armenia were sitting in the same room talking about stray dog control at this particular meeting. I thought it was so unusual. I really, really did. Because I've worked in Azerbaijan quite a bit. I was working on a project there for two years. So, And you've been to Armenia, I know, Harry. Yeah. If I had an Armenian stamp in my passport, they wouldn't even let me in the bloody country. You know, So actually seeing them working there. So the OIE contributed a lot by bringing all the people that matter together 
And basically, it's all about promoting humane stray dog control. So it has been having an impact. I'm afraid it's bloody awful virus is going to put a stop to all a lot of this stuff now because governments and countries are going to thinking about other issues you know mm. so things have been happening in recent years it's just a shame it's bloody virus that's that's happened yeah absolutely but you're hopeful other than the virus you're hopeful you're seeing yeah. i mean things are moving in the right direction aren't they? Uh, yeah i think they are I, I think things eventually will pick up again my biggest fear we now we're heading into an uncertain time. No one's ever been here before. We all know that. And though everyone's on about COVID-19, whilst things aren't being done with problems like rabies, where in some countries we've been getting on top of it. As you know, rabies is very, very curable. We can sort that problem out, provided enough dogs are bloody vaccinated. But if countries' minds are going to be focused on something else, another public health issue, then I can see the rabies cases creeping up again with an very very short space of time we're going to be back to square one again i've learned from experience that rabies always spikes after uh, whether it be human conflict such as war zones because you get a mass herding of animals together uh, they get displaced if there's a conflict area i noticed it in the balkans from after the kosovan wars there was spikes of rabies in parts of croatia where animals dispersed across the region where rabies have been died out for a few years, but all of a sudden it was creeping up again. I noticed it as well in Sri Lanka after the tsunami. But if it's a human disaster, a natural disaster or whatever, it always impacts on something else. And certainly with rabies. And I can see this virus, uh, one of the side effects of this is, is the other bloody virus coming back again, is rabies. Wow. So we've got something to look forward to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow that was brilliant matt wasn't it was it isn't brian a legend absolute legend and absolutely it, it was you were right yep it was a bit genocide yep. at times <laughs> but uh, you know you experience those things and it was a bit rabiesy as well, wasn't it? It's nice that we've got something to look forward to after coronavirus, that we've yeah. got rabies to look forward to. We are bringing a ray of sunshine into people's lives. The rabies barometer was, we were off the charts, Harry. Oh, it was a rabies fest. A rabies fest. <laughs> that was Honestly, it was fantastic to get to be able to hear his stories. And he's, he's a globetrotter. That man must have some amazing air miles. I don't know how he's not got his own travel show. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to visit genocidal and rabies-infested countries? <laughs> Watch next week's yeah. Brian Faulkner around the world in 80 diseases. <laughs> so, Harry... How can people find out more about Brian Faulkner? How can they get in touch with him? You can get in touch with Brian. He's got a Facebook page and a LinkedIn page, so you can look him up there. The links will be in the description of this podcast. He has also just started a website and a blog to start talking about his adventures and his stories and sharing those things himself. And it's called Bimbling with Dogs. And if you don't know what bimbling means, go on the blog and find it out. Find out what bimbling is. It's either exactly what you think it is or absolutely not what you think it is. Yeah, exactly. So, next week. Who's next week? Who's on the next podcast, Matt? I'm very excited about this one as well. We have got the fantastic Charles Vinnick. It's almost part of a Whale Sanctuary Project double header. So, Charles is part of the Whale Sanctuary Project with Laurie Marino, who featured in episode five of the Animal Chat podcast. And Charles is the executive director. He is, again, another absolute legend. And it was an absolute joy for us to do the podcast with him. He was talking about the Cousteau family and his work with them. He was involved in the rehabilitation and reintroduction of Keiko, the killer whale. Keiko was the killer whale that played Willie in Free Willie. I nearly started laughing because I said the word willy because I am that in free willy and he is just an overall gentleman and just fantastic individual so we had a great podcast with him and we cannot wait to share that with you all and so really I guess all we got to do now is thank everybody again for yeah. listening and 
following us, rating us, sharing our podcast. And I guess we want to just encourage people to carry on doing that. Definitely, Harry. Please, please, please subscribe, review, but more importantly, share. Just share it with people. Share it with anyone you like. My mum's listening to it, so why can't your mum? Exactly. More my mum is listening to it, actually, Matt. So. Oh, you mean the listeners. listeners. Yeah, That's what I mean. Mom. If my mum will listen to it, then anyone will listen to it. And she's dancing around listening to it on headphones. Exactly. Which is a weird thing to do to a podcast, but there you That's go. That's my mum for you. <laughs> That's your mum. So remember to, like we just said, review, subscribe, and share it, everyone. And until next week, we hope everyone has a good week. Enjoy whatever it is you're getting up to. And thank you again for listening, and we will see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thanks for, Bye. Thanks for everything. Bye. Bye. Really appreciate you listening to our podcast. Thanks. Review. Bye. Subscribe. Bye. Share. <laughs> Thank you.